Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen and welcome to episode 7 of the podcast. Parallels are often drawn between business and sport, but few draw them as sharply as Alistair Gray. A talented hockey player who began his career with a solid grounding in management consulting, he really made his name when he was offered the opportunity to chair the Scottish Institute of Sport in 1998. Now, these days when we see Scotland competing in sports such as athletics, swimming and curling, we expect success, but that wasn't the case back then. Alistair played a key role in transforming how sport is managed and funded in Scotland, what the priorities are and how to embrace a winning mentality. His success there led him to playing a similarly transformational role in Irish sport and you will hear him discuss a fascinating meeting with former Irish football captain Roy Keane shortly after Keane had famously walked out on the Irish World Cup squad in 2002. And as well as working with brands such as NCR and the famous Grouse, Alistair was also brought in to oversee huge changes at the English FA. Indeed, this summer he became perilously close to infamy as the Scot who helped England win the World Cup. We met in early December at the Waldorf Hotel in Edinburgh to discuss all of this and the launch of his new book, The Game Changer. This podcast was created by White Light Media. Find out more about how we can help your business at whitelightmedia.co.uk. Alistair Gray, so you inhabit a very interesting space straddling and encompassing business and sport. How did that happen? Well, I guess um, probably as a result of my, um, I wouldn't say exciting career in, in sport and in the playing field, although I did okay, um, but I was probably the youngest. What were your sports? Hockey. Right. Field hockey, um, um, which I played and was involved in for many, many years um, and, and did play to a reasonable level. But um, I was then appointed chair of this men's association, I stress that, as will be clear later, um, in, in, um, in 1988. Um, and at, just at that time there were discussions to merge with the Scottish Women's Hockey Association. The two had never been near the same pitch, um, far less been together. But we'd both suffered from the ravages of the school's dispute so that very few schools were actually playing hockey right. and, and clubs essentially didn't have youth hockey, they just relied on schools. So there was a bit of a crisis in the sport uh, and in our discussions we also saw an opportunity to be the best team sport for the family, the one that would be most attractive okay. and to build in the, the values of hockey which are very much family values but particularly in the UK the sports men and women's side of the games had been kept really separate so we were in the vanguard in Scotland of actually being the first to merge and create the Scottish Hockey Union in, uh, right. in 1989. In fact we celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary at the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow <laughs> um, in, uh, in 2014 which was great fun. Um, and that really, I suppose, started me in terms of became recognised uh, as someone who could actually make change happen in sport, which right. is, is one of the most traditional, um, inertia-full, um, I suppose, sectors of, of, of business, uh, and which had before had really just been sending international teams into the world, but suddenly, you know, was being faced with being sued for unfairness or law against laws of natural justice mm -hmm. and, and sports were beginning to incorporate become much more like businesses were having to seek sponsorship rather than relying on pour out from government so it was a very exciting time to be involved as a leader in right. sport and in hockey bless us we did some tremendous stuff 
um, when we, particularly when we merged, because that changed the game as far as we were concerned, and particularly with regard to our relationship with government and Sports Scotland, and gave us a real impetus as a sport, which, to be honest, we've never lost. Um, and uh, I suppose as a result of that, my own reputation, because um, I'd started my own consulting business in 92. Right. So from that point of view, I'd been with PA um, uh, as a director of PA's strategy practice um, for, what, five years prior to, prior to that. Um, and five years prior to that, I'd been with Arthur Young. So I'd had 10 years of, of solid you know, um, strategic management consulting with two major firms. So I started my own business in 92. On the back of the merger, Sports Scotland said to me, look, you know, we've got one particular sport, Scottish swimming, which is uh, in dire trouble. Would you be prepared to work with them? Now, I'd... And when you started the consultancy, was, was that very much your angle was to look at sporting bodies and how you could improve them? Great question. Yeah. Totally not. In fact, I wanted to avoid it because the fee rates were lousy. Right. Um, and I, I wanted to continue my business in my business life, focused on business and very much... My, my attitude starting my consulting business was, you know, I, I've been with a major firm, so why should I charge any less mm. for the type of work I was doing, which mm -hmm. was working with boards and working with executive teams? Uh, so it was a bit of a courageous step in 92, if you remember, the peak of recession. Mm, nice. um, but I kicked it off and was thankfully had a number of clients and PA also supported me. But particularly with a company called Taunton Cider, who were going through a management buyout and flotation. Right. And, and that kind of kicked me off. Uh, but I didn't go near sport because, as I say, the fee rates were probably a quarter in those days of what um, I would get in, in business. So I resisted right. Sport Scotland's <laughs> overtures, something rotten. <laughs> and, uh, and then the, the, how they convinced me and, and actually gave me a reasonable rate, <laughs> which right. wasn't the, right. the rock-bottom public sector one, uh, to work with the, a new board in Scottish Swimming. Uh, swimming had lost 70 grand a year for two years. They'd won no medals. Um, right. of any consequence. They didn't even know what their, their records were or how they stood in world rankings. So completely underperforming major, major Commonwealth Games sport in Scotland. So do you look at, at a client like that and immediately think, I can do so much to help them because they're starting at a relatively low base? Not really, because it depends on... Well, yes, the, there's obviously an opportunity and mm. I was confident in myself from my own time in sport that I... I I, I, I could affect change. But at the end of the day, the doers have to be the planners. The people in slum, swimming have to embrace the change in their behaviour, right. in their ambition, in their attitudes. And But I, what I was, I was convinced having met the new board, I thought, actually, I can work with these guys. Right. Um, you know, we can actually do something. And, and that was the start. And right. I suppose over two years, we worked together. And I was very much in a coaching role, mm. taking them through a process I was confident in. Um, Sports Scotland had also got this framework from the Netherlands Sports Federation, which was actually pretty good in terms of a strategic management framework linked to sport. Mm. So we, we worked away at that. And to be honest, the rest is history right. because they embraced the change. They but what, what were the key steps to, to creating that change? Um, key steps to understand that um, you know, one of Scotland's largest participation sports that they could was to, to understand what it took to win, mm. which meant you know a whole range of things from getting 
you know, four 50-metre pools in Edinburgh, where, uh, sorry, in, in Scotland, because uh, there was the Commonwealth Pool in Edinburgh. Um, Glasgow had an old pool um, mm. near, near Helen Vale, mm-hmm. um, which needed to be refurbished. Um, and the timing was very good because Glasgow was then taking its position as a city of sport. So the whole toll cross development and the Commonwealth Games facilities, the timing was beginning to be good for swimming. There was a pool coming in Aberdeen, one yeah. planned for Dundee, as well as the refurbishment of the Commonwealth Pool in Edinburgh. So number one was the getting the facilities. But the key thing was, can you believe in Scottish swimming in, um, in 1995, there was one full-time professional coach in Scotland. One, okay? Not ten, not a hundred. Mm. One. Who was half-time at a club, Mulgai and Bears Den, and half-time coaching at the High School of Glasgow. Mm-hmm. Whereas now the whole thing is completely changed. So the coaching had been very much down to volunteers. There'd be no high performance end, knowing what it took. Um, the Scottish Institute of Sport um, had yet to start. Um, but right. that was beginning to, to be in, in, in people's eyes at that time. Um, and uh, the, as I said, the, 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 but I would say those were two things, the facilities, the coaching, plus the, the sorting out their priorities. They were trying at that time to run mm. synchronised swimming, diving. Right. Diving was right. on the wrappers, basically. Right. The, the one board which was shutting down <laughs> in Edinburgh. Um, and uh, and um, open water swimming. Right, Obviously, swimming right. itself, water polo, all of these different... So was the strategy just to focus primarily on the swimming and just let... To get priorities. Yeah, 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 so yeah. It was, swimming was, was number one. Mm. Um, Synchronised swimming was not number one. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the, uh, things like water polo was, it was kind of stuck in the middle, but mm. there was open water swimming, there was, there was competitive swimming as being the, the, mm. the key ones to, to get absolutely right. And the fruits of that endeavour, you can still see very much now. Scottish swimming has done incredibly well, hasn't it, in yeah. recent years? And actually, quite soon in the Commonwealth Games in uh, Melbourne mm. in 2006, um, and, well, in fact, in Manchester 2002, right. there were early signs that mm. the beginning to understand what winning medals was about. Mm. But in, they outperformed Australia. Um, in 2006 in the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne, can you imagine? Um, which was fantastic. Were um, you out there for it? I did. Yeah, I, yeah, I was. Yeah. I, I was speaking at a conference uh, at the right. time yeah. and uh, managed to see the swimming and, in fact, was in the company of the, the chair of the, um, sorry, the CEO of the Victorian Institute of Sport, um, who's been telling me how much his swimmers were going to stuff us and, in fact, <laughs> And enjoyed his company <laughs> on the evening when we stuffed them. I bet you did, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so that was, I guess, the start. Um, and then, of course, the big change was 1998 was the lottery funding. Ah, right. okay, yeah, yeah. And um, I'd been asked to chair the working party on high performance sport in Scotland, um, which we called Scottish Sport World Class, which people kind of laughed at. But uh, we said, well, that's what we're about. You know, we want to be world class in the real world, not world class in our own wee world, which was the problem. The, really, the big problem in Scotland right. was the expectations of people, not the athletes, mm. but the expectations of people. Well, you know, you're doing as well as you can, son. You know, sure, it's yeah, a yeah. small country. Yeah. You can't expect too much. Uh, tell that Chris Hoy, Catherine right. Granger, mm-hmm. you know, people like that. And it's Gregor Townsend, it's just. Mm. not the language that they understand but it, but then there was almost a oh you know as I say you, you can only do so well or mm. you know mm. you've, you've done very well to finish fourth 
um, and the whole culture was just not right. So the institute was starting to come through. I chaired the working group. I was then in '98 appointed the first chair of the Scottish Institute of Sport right. and formed the board of, um, of, of, of the institute. And we absolutely murdered our, the goals Sports Scotland set us by, 20, by 2002 right. in Manchester. What, 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 oh, the, the medal goals? In terms of, yeah, the, yeah. of the medal yeah. performance, yeah. The, the positioning of athletes in right. world rankings, yeah. the performance. We, and we, we had seven core sports, um, all of which had a programme and a coach appointed that was initially employed by the Institute. So how, how long were you in that particular role for? To seven years. Right. Yeah. So really, two, almost two, two four-year terms. Right. And that, I guess... So was that a full-time job? Did you no, 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 no. No, it was no. chair. Right, okay. Uh, with a full-time CEO, um, right. Anne-Marie Harrison, great individual from Australia, who came across and was with me all of that time um, and really set up a sporting system in Scotland, second right. to none. Right. We were, and probably still are, the best small institute of sport in the world. Right. Without a shadow yeah. of a doubt. If you look at our medal hall as you'll see mm -hmm. in the chapter on the, yes. in the book yeah. on, on the Scottish Institute of Sport and that I suppose gave me a real position um, I was on the board of UK Sport mm -hmm. the UK Sports Institute um, I'd moved in hockey into the European Hockey Federation International Federation and it, it gave me a tremendous background in, in sport at not only the participation end but particularly high performance sport and of course the lottery in 1998 changed right. everything yeah including fee rates <laughs> <laughs> so suddenly it became attractive right. to work in sport and uh, is there a lot of competition in your area uh, or was there at that point because it seems quite a niche field to be involved in yeah there were a lot of people who'd worked particularly for sports councils who set up as one-man bands and what I did was to take myself out of the, the red ocean of the pack of, mm. of those who were at, at that level. And I focused on the big commercial sports, right. so football, rugby, right. um, tennis, golf. Right. The, these were the main, and the main sports that I focused on, as well as, of course, um, when I was very fortunate, again, on the back of what I'd done to be appointed the chair of British basketball. Oh, right, in, okay. uh, yeah. in 2005, prior to the Olympics, mm. and then in 2008 was appointed Chair of British Swimming through right. to London yeah. Olympics. Yeah. We, we didn't set the heather on fire, but there were some real lessons learned, and the basic system in swimming was not bust. Mm. It was just mm. that, uh, I think, unfortunately, some of the people heading up the executive team underestimated the, the whole, I suppose, the light of, of 2012. Right. And in many right. ways, a lot of the athletes were kind of dazzled by the the whole environment that they suddenly really? had to swim competitively right. in. So yeah. Some good lessons learned, which they've now subsequently, um, you know, learned from and right. moved move forward. Yeah. But um, so, you know, uh, very very fortunate to work across business and sport. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at at a reasonably high level in in, in both. So I wonder if we could then look at some uh, examples of uh, some of the work you've been involved with, both on the sports side and on the business side. Sure, it's um, and there are there are there are lessons, and I think the game changer really tries to 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 bring this out. 
in terms of that apply to both business and sport. And that's what I suppose slightly surprised me when I was putting the book together. I thought, oh, gosh, <laughs> there are common factors right. here. It was, <laughs> there is a logic to why we're doing this. There is a the logic time. to all this work that's gone on. And I think number one was people were, because if you think in, in sport and also in business, that you'd almost follow the business model. And I love some of the research in the Blue Ocean uh, strategy, Red Ocean um, environment, where in a lot of businesses, particularly if there's no real differentiation or added value, people simply compete on price. Mm. They try and besiege walled cities to get into market. So we have to go to China. You know, we have to go to the US. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, they, they flounder. Um, in, in most cases when they do that. What I found was that in particular, the sports that succeeded took a different approach almost to the official way that UK sport or Sport England, oh, right. okay. Sport Scotland would have said, this is how you manage a sport. Yeah. They would, they would actually go about it in a different way. Right. Um, and similarly in, in business, people really broke the rules. Right. Um, the, secondly, they, they worked it out themselves. They didn't just bring in a consultant and get a report. So mm. a lot of my work and my, my colleagues was to actually work with boards, executive teams, embracing the principles of good change management. Right. Um, and, but also plan, plan for a step change in performance. And that was in business, that was right from sport. You know, mm. we, we want to win a gold medal mm -hmm. in four years time. Okay, well, let's, what does it mean? Because we know what the final is going to be running or the final is going to be swimming in four mm -hmm. years' time. We're not going to be far away. So we know a year in, ad in advance of that, we've got to be in finals if we're hoping to win a medal. We've got to be performing. So where does that sit relative to where we are now? Right. So let's yeah. start to make a step change and plan for a step change rather than, well, well let's just improve a little bit. Let's, mm -hmm. you know, we don't want to do too big a leap. It might be threatening to people. The whole culture, <laughs> in many ways, that you often find in, in companies was, was essentially turned on its head. Right. Let's plan to win. Mm -hmm. Is that scary? Uh, well, well uh, the view has to be worth the climb, remember? Right, <laughs> well, let's start climbing and let's start planning our way to the top, but plan back from that medal. Right. Which is, again, right. a completely yeah. different approach to, to doing it. And that meant changing the organisation just as it was with swimming right right in those early days. They, cha they changed the way they did things. No longer were people just elected to positions. Mm. Funnily enough, in Scottish swimming, what we did was we asked people to apply for board positions, not to put their name in front of an AGM, but actually to apply on the basis of their capability and their experience and their ambition and their drive, their personality right. to do a good job for the sport. So, and then finally, to embrace leadership at all levels within the organisation, at all levels, not just at the top mm. or at the, the middle level. But mm. you know, many leaders in business were, are, are very much in the business at the yeah. bottom level. Yeah. I've just been in to see Sir Tom Farmer, who very oh, right. yeah. kindly yeah. wrote the foreword for The right. Game Changer. Yeah. And he, there he was, he was in the depot, <laughs> having really? a chat with the boys. About, <laughs> this is him, whatever age he is now. Yeah. But he was a real game changer. Mm -hmm. But even just speaking to the driver who was his van, one of his employees outside, he could not have been treated any differently. He, I said, I've got here to give the book to, to Tom. Mm. And he said, right. And he just had the confidence to be able to go and engage with Sir Tom. Right. Came yeah. out and made a nice chat yeah. and gave him the yeah. book and so on. He was a leader, that individual, on the sure, full yeah. court yeah. of Quick Fit. Yeah. And that was where he changed the game, and was many ways was one of the inspirations for uh, for really? the work that I, that I did. Great.
Excellent. So, so some examples. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I guess the one of the main ones that really changed my life, to be honest, was NCR and Dundee. Okay. Uh, in the manufacture of ATMs, mm -hmm. they they made cash registers. Um, cash registers, ancient product. Even in their slightly modernised state, 80% labour costs, 20% material costs. Turn that on its head. ATMs, 80% material, 20% labour. Right. They were making things, their whole approach to manufacturing was the same they made cash registers. They were really struggling. Um, they had to put the safe on at the beginning and chunted it through the entire factory. <laughs> Defects landed from all over the place mm. um, and seriously underperforming changed the whole way that they were doing things um, in terms of moving from you know this kind of line management to, to cell based management mm -hmm. um, but more importantly led by an inspirational vice president in Jim Adamson who um, asked us to come in and effectively to to, to, to set up five different factories um, uh, non-union or one single union mm. um, rather than the four or five unions that they had so all traditional practices and we need you to tell us this is what we're going to do so in other words we were given the result by the client which we said is wrong right so i suppose that started off a theme of of my consulting work which was not just to accept the future that the client gives you right um, yeah. you're often told as consultants if you you start with a client um, well, of course, you'll just borrow our watch and tell us the time. And I used to get really grumpy about that because <laughs> uh, I thought, well, that's just not the case at all. And I thought, hang on a minute, it is. So I would say to clients, yeah, that's what I'll do. In fact, I'll charge you to borrow the watch mm -hmm. because, you know, when I look at the time in your watch, it's set at some time in the past right. when you were okay. successful. Yeah. It doesn't reflect how you're currently performing mm -hmm. or it's set at some time in the future. I don't think you're going to make it that future on the basis of how you're performing. Mm. So don't give me this crap about borrowing your watch and telling you the time. Okay? So that sort of set the relationship. <laughs> so you're able to handle that line with ease whenever yeah. it comes up now. So, you know, as far as NCR was concerned, they challenged Michael Porter's theories mm. of you cannot be differentiated and low cost at the same time. Right. They absolutely did. Right. And Adamson, in fact, would agree with me that um, in, in the complex and uncertain and rapidly changing world in which we operate at the moment, you have to do both mm. at the same mm. time. Porter's theories were very much based on the old manufacturing model of right. the 1980s, and I don't think they apply now. So it was interesting when we worked with NCR in the 90s that mm. you know, that was the, the, the major change. So they moved to a 60% market share on the basis of changing their manufacturing operation, um, but more importantly, you know, their, their service engineers would be their front line in terms of selling to the, the banks. Right, right. And they, they really took a stolen march on IBM particularly mm. and Philips and Diebold at the time. Right. The other interesting one was Famous Grouse, where I was fortunate to be a non-executive director um, for Highland Distillers, oh, appointed right, right. in 92. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I suppose it was being a consultant at the same time as a non-exec, which is quite different, um, but it gave me the opportunity to, to work with the executives in Highland Distillers at the time. Because um, at that time, whiskey companies didn't advertise. There was maybe some generic positioning of the haggis and the heather and the whiskey and so on. Mm. And it was very traditional. And, uh, but they didn't really 
you know, they, they didn't compete in terms of the positioning of their, their products in the, the, the marketplace. Mm. The Scotch Whiskey Association was, of course, a tremendous body where, in fact, they encouraged what would be called in consulting language, coopetition, where things like barley supplies, packaging supplies, yeah. training of operators, degrees for people coming into the distillery industry, huge cooperation that took place until it came to taking the product to market. Mm, mm. And when, uh, you, you, you may remember in Scotland, the, the fuss over the creation of Diageo and when Bell's uh, whisky were, were, were acquired um, and uh, there was hu huge concern over all of this. And Diageo formed this giant mm. um, and companies like Highland Distillers that owned Grouse um, really had to completely reposition themselves and that's where in Famous Grouse uh, the tactics um, uh, uh, the article in the book talks about Braveheart 2 giving the lessons of, of Bruce and Wallace to competing against you know apparently uh, superior odds right, right. and how they achieved it and in many ways the, the case study of Grouse is very much like Bruce against Edward II mm. at Bannockburn in terms of taking you know, the indirect approach, in terms of focusing on the key points really? of battle. Right, right. So Grouse only concentrated on 10 global markets, um, but also brought in this very attractive advertising that you may have seen with the stupid bird on television, yeah, 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 yeah. leaping about and floating and perfectly mm. balanced and, and so on. Um, and through the, 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 if you like, the positioning, particularly of, of Grouse, and the premium that it had as a quality product, mm. um, completely dominated Bells, Dewars, Yeah, Hague. it's the biggest selling Scottish blend, isn't it? So when you're build, you were building up your consultancy, presumably it sounds to me like you were able to, to play this quite, quite cleverly in a sense, because you would really appeal to your business clients because you've come from this sporting background when it's all about winning yes. and achieving particular goals. Yeah. And you're also going to appeal to your, your sporting audience because you have the credibility of working with big brands like NCR and yeah. Grouse, etc. Yeah. So um, two, two really good examples there on the business side. Can you tell us something about what you've been doing on the, uh, over the years on the, on the sporting side? Yeah, sure. Um, the... I think one of the best examples, and it's in, in many ways, it's only just now in, in 2018 that um, they really succeeded, was England Netball. Right, yeah. Um, and um, th th that was very interesting because netball is such a traditional sport. And um, we were asked, and they were very, very good, um, although almost too good at getting money out of Sport England. Um, they, every single pot that Sport England had netball were in there uh, totally their funding totally dominated by sport england grants not even subscriptions um, so we were asked to do a comprehensive review by sport england and at the end of the research phase um, i'd suggested to my colleagues that i said look there's kind of five points we want to get across here um, number one you're playing outdoors and you should be playing indoors you're playing in counties and you should be playing in cities. You're playing when you feel like it and you should be playing in leagues and competitions that can be promoted and, and marketed. Mm. You're chasing every single um, pot that Sport England have and you should be commercially much more sustainable and viable through <laughs> commercially and more sustainably viable um, through uh, sponsorship and advertising and, and all sorts of other things. So 
and then finally you're playing in gym slips and you should be playing in lycra now that was obviously <laughs> quite controversial right, right. <laughs> but to be fair to them they sat back and they said no you're absolutely right um will you work with us over the next six months to help us get us in a plan for change mm. and through that and through the work of a particular colleague of mine sally horrocks um who was from netball herself um, they, we, we, we helped to create the Women's Super League, which was televised on Sky, could you believe? Right, yes. And has transformed the way that netball now is portrayed as a sport. Mm. And, um, of course, eventually the performance side improvements led to them winning the gold medal in the Commonwealth Games. Right. So that was, that was one mm. example. The other one, which um, I always find interesting, is, is the FA. Now, as you may know, the FA is actually mm. the English FA, mm -hmm. but they call themselves the FA because they're the FA. <laughs> they founded the game. Football's yes. coming home. <laughs> um, can you imagine a Scot having the opportunity to work with the English <laughs> FA to make sure England never win the World Cup ever again? <laughs> That's what I had. And myself and an Irish colleague mm. worked with Brian Barwick and his team at the FA over two years. Mm. Um, to basically transform their organisation right. and to give them the first ever integrated strategy in their 130 year history. Right. Um, which has resulted in St George's Park directly as from coming from the project right. where they now essentially are training the young, young England players and mm. you'll have seen the success of the England underage teams in, in recent, mm. in just in the last two or three years. Um, so St George's Park was a, a very clear one. Also the decision to appoint a performance director rather than Trevor Brooking, who was the sort of director of football, technical director right. overall football. You can't do that these days. Mm. Uh, Ian McGeehan, who was, um, again, one of the endorsers in, of the book, um, you know, Ian used to say, I, I can't be talking to Matt Williams one day about the Scotland team and then opening a fete at Curry Rugby Club. Right. You know, you focus on winning, focus on growing. Mm -hmm. And that's the key message, actually, for sport, is that the sporting organisations now are not just about putting teams out into the world. They're actually about, about winning, but they're also about growing the game. Mm -hmm. And you have to do the same, this, you have to do both at the same time right. in terms of, of, of developing sport. So we did that with the FA. And as a direct result of that, as I say, there was St George's Park, there was a performance function, um, there was the focus on making Wembley viable as a, as, a, as a whole business area. And the other interesting one was the development of women's football. Um, and again, you've now seen the development mm. of the yeah. English Super League, yeah. very much like netball. Mm -hmm. Sally Horrocks, surprise, surprise, was employed by England, by the AFA, mm. to move it forward. So I was slightly worried in the World Cup when England got to the <laughs> semi-final. I'm thinking, do what I have, have you to, done? Do I have to rewrite the chapter? <laughs> but I'm so proud. Um, Did you, I mean, the, the FA has come for years has come in for a lot of criticism in the press for the way it's managed and yeah. governed. So, did you find it challenging to change some of the things they were doing? Or yeah, help them absolutely. Yeah. And it, it probably made it easier actually being a Scot, right? And but the fact myself and my colleague with pretty high credibility in terms mm. of uh, the, the organisations that we'd worked with, mm. consulted with. Plus, we were both from sport, mm. so we kind of knew what we were talking about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the, uh, the council of the FA was a huge amorphous beast mm. which was assembled probably once a month at, at not inconsiderable cost. Right. Um, all men, apart from one woman, 
Oxford and Cambridge universities still represented, the army, the navy, the air force still represented on the council of the FA. Right, yeah. Antediluvian in terms of its structure. Lord Burns I'd actually worked with on the governance review mm. and he, um, he made a number of changes that moved it along the way but they resisted the majority of non-execs for example on the board. Uh, but managed, we managed to kind of nudge that forward as, as well. Right, right. So um, it was actually, again, another game changer for us, was working mm. with them, the largest and most complex and complicated governing body of sport in the world. The, the, the numbers of the FA are just incredible in terms of number of players, mm. number of coaches, number of referees, number of leagues, number of teams. It's huge. It doesn't compare with anywhere else in the world. Right which is the challenge yeah. for leading and managing mm -hmm. for the FA. But I think now they're beginning to get a bit of stability and I know they've, they're not short of issues, but uh, at the time we started, they'd just come out of firing two chief executives and Sven right. for right. inappropriate <laughs> behaviour, should we say. <laughs> now, talking of inappropriate behaviour and football, um, you also famously were involved uh, in the aftermath of Roy Keane's <laughs> exit from the World Cup back in... Was that, that, that was the Japan World Cup, was it? No, it was, it was Saipan... It, sorry, it was uh, Japan and Korea. Yeah, Japan and Korea, yeah. 2002. So um, what happened then and how did you get... First of all, how did you get in that position when you were working so closely with the, with the Irish setup? Yeah, well, I think it came out of the work we'd done in Ireland um, for Irish rugby and also right. setting up the high-performance side. Um, so we were trusted. We were also not Irish, which is mm -hmm. very important in terms of the objectivity. And they'd appointed the former governor of the Bank of Ireland, Maurice O'Connell, as um, the, the overall head of the review. And I remember him saying to me, he said, Alistair, I've got to be bomb-proof on this, which was kind of interesting and sensitive at the time. Um, <laughs> but, um, but that's what we did. And, um, you know, it was a very open, comprehensive review um, and where we invited all the players and coaches and everybody to contribute. And we got some very rich stuff. Um, and um, the key thing, obviously, was to interview Roy Keane. Um, and that was very difficult because Alec Ferguson had um, said no. You know, he's got enough trouble, which he had, um, in terms And of this was just after he'd, he'd, he'd exited the, the World Cup squad, was it? Correct. Yeah. yeah, he came yeah. back no, from the practice, from the uh, the preparation camp in Saipan. Mm. Um, Big bust up between him and the manager Mick, Mick McCarthy. McCarthy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, you know it was really a question of leadership, and no one, no one from the Football Association of Ireland actually got together with a pair of them and cracked their heads together and said, mm. "Guys, come on, sort this, this out." There was no leadership at all right. in the in Irish football. Um, that was having an impact. So those, the two of them basically got further and further apart. Both strong personalities in mm. their own way. But Keane had demanded certain standards in terms of you know, the Irish team. Classically, the one that's often reported is the players are in the back of the plane, the officials are in the front, which is true. But um, you know, also just things like basic nutrition and mm. the whole professional management of a squad was completely missing as well as the, the whole PR side, which they completely underestimated when this exploded right. um, on the world's media. Um, so the, the review actually was pretty straightforward um, and arguably came out in favour of what Keane was trying to right. say right. Um, and certainly led to huge change under John Delaney in the Football right. Association of, of Ireland. Yeah. Um, 
And yeah, we managed to get an interview with him eventually. So um, how was he? Because, I mean, to many people, the idea of, of interviewing Roy Keane when he's feeling a little bit sore and bruised could be quite an intimidating prospect. Yeah, well, I think I'm probably one of the few people to have interviewed him for two hours and lived. Right. <laughs> um, and he was, he was very interesting. He, he's got a digital switch. You know, and you could see how he would explode one way or, or, mm. or, or the other. But he was very measured in his review. And I think it was probably summed up right at the end when um, he, he, he somewhat... Uh, he's got a nice degree of arrogance, uh, which is actually quite attractive in some ways. And he said, well, I suppose everybody's learned a lesson from all of this, Alistair. And I remember thinking to myself, do I have the courage to say... So what were your lessons learned mm, from mm. Roy? So I did. Mm. And he, he rocked back with laughter. Uh, and they said, oh, I set myself up for that. And I said, yeah, you did. You're going to answer it as well. So he said, yeah, well, he said, I should never have gone. should right. never have gone right. to the World Cup. I should, put up with all, should have put up with all the hassle. I'd had my worst ever season for Man United. We'd won nothing. Mm. I was injured. My groin mm. was needing surgery. I'd been on painkilling injections for half the season. Mm. I'd kicked Hagland, the Manchester City player, up in the air. Mm -hmm. I was due in court in, in October. Um, what could be worse um, f for me in terms of last season? the last season? I'd complained about the, the whole government approach to um, the, the FAI and so on. And sure enough, we turned up at Dublin Airport and there was Bertie Ahern in the T-shirt saying all the same things he'd said to me when we went to the States a few World Cups before. Mm. Nothing had changed. Nothing had changed. And then, of course, we turned up, and there we were in Saipan. The skip, which with the balls, with the, the bibs and so on, it, it was never going to arrive on time. Uh, when we did the interviews, people showed me the delivery notes from DHL. Look, look, Alistair, it was never going to arrive on time. <laughs> and so the whole thing was just not managed professionally. Right, so right. we made a number of recommendations mm. and so on. So did you interview uh, Mick McCarthy as part of that process yeah, as absolutely. well? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and you know, again, he was—he felt that he'd, you know, he'd felt badly let down by mm. his captain, mm -hmm. and um, you know, Keane had actually invited him to his house um, like a year or so before the World Cup and said, "Look, come on, Mike, let's make things different." And mm -hmm. he just had these two personalities that were fairly entrenched in their own right. Way. I won't say which one was right, which one was wrong, mm. but there was no one from the FAI. You know, you'd expect a CEO or a performance director to be in there, mm. uh, which was actually one of the key recommendations that we, right. we gave to both England and Ireland and, and Scotland. But the fascinating thing was that um, at the end of all of this, um, our report, the Genesis report, as it was called in, 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 in Ireland, was um, probably a bestseller in, in some ways because it was made pub public. But a book called We Declare was published in... Uh, in 2005, which was the 10 documents that have helped um, forge the, 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 the position of modern Ireland, hmm. or create the position of modern Ireland. So there was De Valera's declaration, um, there was St Columbus prayer, and there were a number of other documents, the Good Friday Agreement, the Genesis report was number 10. <laughs> so how cool that's, is that? That's a pretty, uh, pretty good endorsement, isn't it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fantastic. And so all this um, experience that you've gained over the years has now been distilled into your book, The Game Changer. Yeah. Uh, and the premise of this uh, seems to be that, that a lot of organisations succeed by going further than just raising their performance, by actually changing 
the rules of the game. Now you've alluded to this throughout our, our interview, but I just wonder if we could, if you could give me a, a little bit of further explanation about how people can go about changing the rules. Yeah, well, I think number one is that the doers have to be the planners. So the companies themselves have to have the ambition. They have to have the desire, if you like, to win their gold medal. And they have to basically establish what's written on that medal in how many ever years' time. One, two Olympiads, you know, it doesn't matter. Mm. Set a time in the future um, and understand what, it, what the performance level that it's going to take in order to achieve that. And the extent to which you can do more by incremental improvement, highly unlikely these days, given the exponential you know, expansion of technology and embracement of technology in all all markets, not just in artificial intelligence and things like this. Mm. You know, AI will reduce the number of you know manual jobs, relatively low level jobs, but it creates a whole heap of jobs mm. in in terms of areas of expertise and functional yeah. areas. So it should not it should be seen as an opportunity, not as a threat, to improve the, the overall value of, of business propositions. But companies have got to have that ambition. Without that, you can't be dragged kicking and screaming into a medal-winning position. You've got to be prepared to go. You've got to be prepared to change things. And you have to work it out yourselves in terms of change management. So number one, you know, really make sure you're dissatisfied with where you are mm-hmm. um, or, and, and therefore the extent to which you need to change. The key thing is having a vision of success that can inspire your people, mm. your customers, in many ways your competitors, um, in terms of this is where we're going to go, the view is worth the climb. Yeah. And on the basis of that, you can then start to prepare for, for change. Um, and I think it probably does mean then reconfiguring the organisation to an extent, um, but also working with leaders at all level in the organisation who can effectively champion the change. And I do mean at all levels within the organisation. And I think those, what I'm really suggesting is there are these five principles mm. that the game changers embraced. And don't just pick one, particularly mm-hmm. don't pick one you're most comfortable with. Mm-hmm. The game changers embrace all five all right. of the time. Right. Excellent. Well, that's a very, very good way to round things off. Alistair Gray, Excellent. thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure. So there you go. Let's all see if we can go and change the games that we are playing in. And if that involves marketing and communications, do give myself and the team at whitelightmedia.co.uk a shout because we can help. That's all for now. Our next podcast will be a festive special out in the week of Christmas. Bye-bye. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.